0: And you were saying that um, Florida is one of the best places to be at now.
1: It seems it's all, of course, a, a function of your uh, your view of of the risk that you might have being out in public in a place like Florida, where the the mask rules are are pretty loose. Um, people aren't wearing them in gyms. You know, the six foot rule I think still applies, but um, it's a really as far as having sort of freedom to go about your life and you know, without lockdowns coming upon you out of nowhere, which I think is happening a lot of places. Florida's great. So I, I feel kind of almost bad being here in a way because my life, which is, you know, lar- I, I work from home, is it's largely uninterrupted. I wear a mask when I go grocery shopping. And, you know, you wear a mask on your way into a restaurant if you go to eat. And otherwise, life is very much the same for me. So um, things are pretty good, at least on my end. Um, not trying to rub that in, but I can't complain one bit at all, especially in comparison to how some people um, are living these days.
0: Yeah, so um, so yeah, Scott, uh, it, it's great that uh, you can still live life as, as, as normal. So I would assume that your training is still going well and, and all of that stuff. Um, honestly, I think for many people, this whole thing, like especially so for someone who is working from home, if it wasn't for the gyms, uh, for a lot of people deep into bodybuilding or even just fitness, uh, the whole pandemic situation and even the lockdowns would actually be even a positive because there is like less distractions, less um, whatever temptations, less opportunities arising to cheat on their diet and whatever. So so I think a lot of people would take that if they could take the pandemic without the gyms closing down, I think for a lot of people, it would actually be a positive. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it does. It does, you know, create a sense of order in a certain way um, for some people. But yeah, it's it does. But as you know, we don't want to get into it's been it's there's so much randomness to, you know, the restrictions that that also kind of um, that's the other side of the coin. That's not quite as advantageous. Is not kind of knowing what's going to go on and what what where the restrictions will lie. It's it's a fascinating time, that's for sure. But that's that's a whole other podcast or string of podcasts. Yeah. We could
0: delve into. Well, well, yeah, well, Scott, as I told you off-air, I just really hope that everybody, everybody will be safe, and I 100% respect the decisions of all governments. Yeah. So, absolutely. Um. <laughs> so cool. um, our topic for today is uh, something I'm interested in discussing, or I'm very excited about uh, discussing. And this is something I'm planning on having kind of a mini series on my YouTube channel and uh, covered this from a couple of angles, because I think there is a lot of, I wouldn't say misconceptions, just for one, a lot of curiosity out there about this. I'm definitely curious about this myself. And, And also just a lot of opposing views and a lot of these opposing views seem to make a lot of intuitive sense when I come across them at first. So I would be just interested in hearing someone competent in the field and just being very knowledgeable in general, shedding maybe some clearer light on this whole issue. So the topic that we have today is enhanced versus natural fitness in general. So training and dieting, that's kind of what I want to talk about so um yeah scott are you ready
1: yes yeah let's dig in the um the can of worms is ginormous so i've got my suit of armor on i'm ready to uh ready for any kind of worm we might pull out
0: yeah so um maybe just as a very general intro question to this whole topic Would you say that when it comes to the impact of anabolics, which is what we're talking about when we say enhanced, so testosterone, testosterone derivatives, uh, steroids of all kinds, maybe we could take peptide hormones in here as well. Um, Would you say that people in general, from what you've seen, tend to overestimate their impact on how it changes the game in terms of training and dieting? Or underestimated. What do you tend to see?
1: Both, <laughs> both right. to some degree, and and I and I say that. And I'll, I can start before if we uh, if we want to dig into the, some of the science, kind of what's going on mechanistically there in those two scenarios. I can refer back to a um, like sort of a very practical kind of dual case study that happened when I was developing my training system, Fortitude training, and because there's so much variability and recovery resources across among individuals I set that up to have three training volumes three volume tiers that you can choose from and people can sort of ramp into a, what I call a, a blast a progressive blast or a mesocycle of training with the lower tier and then a middle tier and then the third tier so there's tiers one two and three
0: but by, by blast you mean training in this case <laughs> yeah this is just training exactly yes
1: just <laughs> and of course those things often coincide um, yeah, Dante Trudell first started talking about blasting and cruising in the context of training, um, and that's what I'm talking about now. But of course, that those terms also get used in terms of drug use, blasting with a, a higher dosage, and then cruising with a TRT or coming off after a PCT or something of, of that nature. So, but back when I was formulating the training pro- program, and I, ha- I had some clients former clients. Some of them could have been clients even at the time. I can't recall. It's been a few years, but I had two individuals in sort of my beta testing group. And one was a natural competitor, um, didn't have the greatest genetics for bodybuilding, body, held on to body fat really, really well. Um, so there was some, a good survival value in terms of that. So getting lean was difficult, but ha- was very, very hardy in terms of recovery. And he would train with the highest volume cheer and he could he could blast like that even longer than the average person without any uh, PEDs, without any um, without being geared up. And the another person who was also literally doing going through this at the same time trained so hard and was actually a almost pro caliber. He would have if he had lived in the States, he would have gotten a pro card. They give them out a little more readily here in the US through the NPC. He would have been a, a pro in bodybuilding. And he was enhanced and he could only get by with the lowest volume tier, which is about one-third the training volume they both trained really really hard in fact the the first person i mentioned trained with someone who eventually got his pro car. so they're training you know at a, a very very high level in the gym but their recovery abilities were all over the place so that's sort of a baseline variability that i think a lot of people don't necessarily take into consideration so Going back to your question now, is to, to what extent do people um, overestimate or underestimate the impact here? Um, it's going to be a function of so many different things, but, but to some degree, it's a function of the relative responsiveness to the drugs themselves. So we have the, the, the classic example that probably comes up in at least half of these discussions is Kevin Lavrone who was known, to you know, especially later on in his career, he'd take, you know, three or four or five months off. Like the, the old story is he walked into the weeder offices once and he was like 210 or, you know, it looked like he hadn't, he hadn't stepped foot in the gym for four or five months. It looks like he'd never, maybe never even trained. And then four or five months later, he's on stage at 240, shredded, you know, in the first call out of the Mr. Olympia. And there's other, other mechanisms that work there as far as muscle memory goes and ability to train that were helpful there but that kind of transformation is absolutely extraordinary and that's that points to his responsiveness to the drugs as well as his general responsiveness to training obviously you've got to have you know pretty pretty high level genetics for bodybuilding to compete at that level in the in the first place whether or not you're consistent and pounded out every day for years on end or you do it the way lavroni did give himself a break and those those pathways of anabolism interact and overlap to some degree. So it's not as if when someone puts, um, uh, is enhanced and puts steroids into the mix that now they've got a whole different separate set of mechanisms involved in terms of producing muscle size. You've still, you still got skeletal muscle. That There are some differences that have been noted in the research, but you're still going about turning on protein synthesis or satellite cell activity things of that nature that are still involved, whether you're natural or you're enhanced. So he had good genetics first and foremost. But what you will see sometimes in some people, and there even are, there are clinical um, examples of people with androgen insensitivity who, uh, who have malformed androgen receptors who don't, re- regardless of how much they use, don't get dramatic responses. They don't grow very well from it. And there are also you know situations, and Laveroni is, is one of these. It seems like whether whether he had something that was specifically um, helpful for him in terms of sensitivity to androgens. I don't know. Um, it's, it's an interesting, interesting phenomenon that the, the androgen receptor is on the X chromosome. So for men, their androgen receptor is coming to them from their mother. So we have a couple examples of pro bodybuilders who are at the top of the game whose fathers were at the top of the game. Um, back in their day. They both actually happen to have fathers that that uh, are Cuban, interestingly enough. So, and their antigen receptors, and I'm not trying to like say that they're all the gains were, you know, it was all drugs or what have you, as, as people like to hashtag, but their antigen receptors are coming from their mothers. And I don't think in either case there's a whole bunch of evidence of the mothers having a particular advantage genetically for putting on muscle mass. So, it's not just antigen receptors, but what is known actually, and this comes from the um, the research literature looking into prostate cancer risk. There's their ethnicities or genetic backgrounds, and depends on which study you look at. Sometimes they use the term African American, sometimes they'd use the term black, they're kind of categorizing, and that's just sort of a it's a phenotypic categorization whereas whereby they look at the genotype for the antigen receptor and it's been found that african americans or blacks in these studies have a higher antigen binding affinity than do uh, their white counterparts or caucasian counterparts the other members of the of the study group um and that is one potential genetic advantage that might come that individuals might have whether it's just because of the their ethnicity their genetic background or maybe they they ended up um (laughs) by the luck of the draw having a bit of a mutation, there's a couple of different sequences in the antigen receptor that are known to change the shape. And if we um, sort of uh, invoke the lock and key hypothesis where you've got a ligand, like an antigen, binding to the um, the antigen receptor, that's actually two pieces of the antigen receptor that come together when the binding occurs, but. When, if, if someone had the genetic luck of the draw to get a, a little bit of, a, of a, a miscopying or a mutation, they may end up with an antigen receptor that's, that's uh, more sensitive to antigens. So that's one piece of the puzzle. And you can see in those examples of the pro bodybuilders. I'm sure people can read between the lines what I'm talking about here, not that there's anything negative about this, but that that's one piece of the puzzle which, whereby you can have someone who has great genetics for muscle gains and maybe they don't have the best genetics for responsiveness to uh, steroids. Whereas someone might have really good, ge- decent genetics, not the best, but be highly responsive to antigens because of simply, simply the antigen receptor. There's other pieces to this puzzle. Um, and I've talked about this on a couple podcasts where these topics come up. The, um, there's a phosphodiesterase enzyme in the liver, which is responsible for cleaving away the esterified fatty acid that you find in something like testosterone enanthate or nandrolone decanoate. So the activity of that phosphodiesterase, I think it's the 7B isoform of that enzyme, will dictate the extent to which you have prolonged elevation of the free steroid molecule, nandrolone or testosterone or what have you. So the area under the curve after a standardized, let's say 200 milligram injection will vary, at least in one particular study I'm thinking of, by 60%. So if you're looking at area under the curve that you see when you inject the steroid molecule over the course of the the next week or so when they follow it, one individual with the uh, the less advantageous phosphodiesterase, isoform, would have 60% less area under the curve and by that judgment have 60% less... um, of an of anabolic advantage coming from elevation of that antigen in their blood and then all the things that happen when it goes about its business in the on the muscles as well as whatever may happen psychologically too which is I think a piece of this of this puzzle as well so so some people will be extraordinarily responsive and they'll just blow up so to speak you hear hear the stories of guy's putting on you know 25, 30, 35 pounds a lot of that's water of course and then there are, there are people, and this is like the stories abound too. They always sort of make me giggle because it's, um, it's something that I think people don't want to um, believe for various reasons. But you'll hear the stories of two training partners who, you know, they, they seek out their first cycle together, and they go find the you know, local guy who sells them something out of the back of the, the trunk in their car in the, the parking lot behind the gym, and they take the exact same thing. And the one guy who's well-known, which is why we're hearing these stories now, um, is uh, just blows up, same drugs, everything else is exactly the same, and his training partner gets very little out of it, or, or relatively less in comparison at least. So there will be situations where things are, um, uh, where the, the growth response is tremendous, and then the opposite of the spectrum also exists. And you see this in exercise adaptations in terms of aerobic power with endurance training, and strength, and muscle mass. Oh, it's just a humongous range. And I've, I've got a, um, a presentation I give, a talk I like to give, um, that I've entitled, Why You Don't Look Like a Pro. And I go through various um, uh, aspects of bodybuilding, dietary glycemic responses to, to foods, um, the microbiome plays a role there, drug responses I pull about, your growth hormone, steroids, etc., protein synthesis responses, to a single exercise bout, all those sorts of things are all over the place in terms of their variability, as as well as the the growth response or adaptation that you'll see over the course of just your basic two or three month training study. And there are people who are very close to or maybe even really non-responders. And there are people who are extraordinary responders who just grow like weeds. They drive by the gym and they gain a couple ounces of muscle mass. So... The same thing holds, I think, for, for gear. It's not been, you, you can't, there are too many studies like the schlender bosen study um, where they gave 600 milligrams of testosterone. Most people know about that, um, where you can sort of examine the variability among individuals and a lot of exercise studies and just studies in general, they don't, they don't do that. They don't pull out the individual data and show you those numbers. That used to be done, that was sort of the standard um, in you know the first half of the 20th century for sure and a lot of the studies thereafter, because oftentimes, and you see this in some labs too, with the graduate students, or even with the the researchers themselves, the faculty members, the professors, the PhDs, is that they're, they've got a limited number of subjects, and they'll plot all the data. You'll see the variation in the, in the actual results that are published with the articles in the scientific literature. It's just phenomenal to see that. But the very nature of the statistical analysis is one where you're looking at what you would predict given that you've sampled a population which you define clearly recreationally resistance trained males being administered X amount of steroids or what have you in the hypothetical study that you might look into. And you'll see an average and you see standard deviations and a trained, a statistically trained eye could look at those standard error bars or the standard deviations and recognize when there's a wide variability in the adaptation, or the change that you see pre to post in a study like that. But unless you see those data where you're seeing, you know, 5% increases in muscle cross-sectional area and 20% increases in muscle section area cross-sectional area, um, you don't recognize to what extent the growth can vary. And I'll, I'll toss, before I end my uh, soliloquy here, I'll toss one more study out. It had nothing to do with steroids. This was actually a study I did for my, my PhD dissertation, and we were testing the effect of creatine, on muscle size. And we trained one leg using electrical stimulation and um, an isokinetic dynamometer. So the training efforts were taken out of the picture. And I was blinded. And the subjects were also blinded. Of course, sometimes people figure out whether they're taking creatine or not. But I was blinded to the experimental condition of the subjects. And there was, uh, on in the non-trained leg, about a 5% increase in size over the course of the the training period, eight weeks, and the study, the model we used increases muscle size pretty rapidly. That's why we're able to just keep it to eight weeks, because the overload is, is much more substantial than what you can do voluntarily. But there was one individual, the the greatest responder, and it, 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 that gained quad size. We just trained the quads in this study. I think the, it was like 21%, something like that, over two weeks. And what was interesting is you could, and he was sort of an outlier in this regard but you could we only trained one leg the other leg they maintained their current training program as best they could and we trained we trained the uh the other leg and you could see that the leg we were training was growing like crazy um so the substantial size gains were all over the place but the average the average change in the in the creatine group was like 7% is like a 7 versus 5%, which wasn't statistically significant. But that individual at the, at the furthest end of the the changes in muscle size was three times the average. And it was obvious to me. I, I just, I knew he was growing. growing. I don't even recall even if he was in the creatine group or not, to be honest. But he responded tremendously well to that training stimulus. So if someone said, yeah, hey, just get going in there and doing that crazy shit with the electrical stimulation that, that Stevenson has you doing, on that dynamometer thing, that torture chamber he's created in there, does that make the muscle grow? He would say absolutely yes. And someone else who maybe was on the other end who maybe got a 3 or 4% increase in quad size would say, I, I mean, I saw a little bit of growth, but like no big deal really. I, it wasn't worth it to, in, my, in my mind to go through what he put us through. So there's going to be a wide range of, of uh, opinions. And of course, these are just the subjective estimations that people are seeing through are known to be biased uh, minds. So sometimes we like to see, we have confirmation bias driving us all the time. So we like to see what we want to see that substantiates how we see ourselves, how we see others. Do I work harder than somebody else? Is that guy lazy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these sort of preconceived, well-formed or ill-formed conceptions are driving our subjective perceptions of how well we think something is working for someone who is doing something that you're not. So, there's a long answer to a um, a very actually uh, off answered off posed question that um, hopefully should get us started here on the on the
0: discussion. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <but> that... <laughs> Thought about this a couple times, right? Yeah, but seriously, I just like started out with like a very general question. Let's just get get ourselves warmed up here. But damn, like uh, you threw a lot of specific and really kind of fascinating stuff at me. And and the most fascinating one is kind of going directly against what I've often said and what a lot of smart people say. And that is, look, if you're resentful that this fake netty that you're seeing on Instagram Mm. is, you know, 5'11", 220 pounds and has, you know, 30 or 40 pounds more muscle than you and whatever, you're just chalking the whole thing up to the gear. Um, My common response would be and of that of people much smarter than me in the topic that, look, even if this guy was netty, he would still have probably 20, 30 more pounds of muscle than you. Is just the gear is allowing him to hold on to an extra 20 maybe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the steroids are giving not just an edge, it will make a significant difference, but um, someone who looks amazing on gear and is massive would probably be massive without gear as well. Uh, one example that uh, very... Uh, smart and popular person in the industry used a lot is, look, big Rami on stage is 315 pounds. How big do you think he would be if he was not on gear? Like if your guess is that he would be 185 pounds, like you're nuts. Like he could easily be 250 lean with his genetics. But what you're saying is that that is not necessarily true. Like that you could almost take two guys that are identically gifted in terms of being able to put on muscle, but one guy might actually be a lot more gifted in terms of how they respond to gear itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there, there, there's that's one possibility as to the extent to which the, the kind of the concept, and I was thinking about this after you asked me to come on the podcast, is that the, this matches what you initially said there, is that the gear kind of buoys you above your otherwise genetic limit, your natural limit, let's call it. Um, so, and the extent to which, whether you're getting an extra 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 50 pounds, is going to be a function of your responsiveness to whatever you're using, um, and there's going to be variability depending on what gear you're using, what, what actual steroid molecules you're using, because those affect different people differently, as well as, obviously, the dosage and, of course, the duration. So, but I think there is, obviously, like I said before, there's some converging mechanisms that that are involved in what GEAR does, what anabolic steroids do in terms of producing muscle mass and muscle growth and what resistance exercise promotes as well. You've still got the same tissue and it's got a, a generalized program for for growing hypertrophy and or hyperplasia. And so there's some convergence there. It's not as if you've got... Sometimes people like to kind of say this in the context of sarcoplasmic or hypertrophy or what have you. This is another topic, that that, that an enhanced muscle looks different than a muscle that's had naturally. But generally, I think those who are good responders and Big Rami's is a, a great example. I've got some even even more specific ones. And I, this is again is just this is all speculation when I mention the names of these people. But I these of have been course. talked about many times. Is that if you have someone with good genetics for muscle growth in general, um, and they have assuming they don't like to have complete antigen sensitivity, which they would have probably known. Those are in in in, folk, in cases like that, people don't go through new, a normal puberty. Um, that would be a very a very kind of scientifically interesting, but unfortunate for the individual type of scenario. So let me just toss up some, some names of people who competed at the amateur ranks for quite a while and became pros and and the timelines are a little bit different for each of these folks but then put on a massive amount of size so they were extraordinary literally world-class amateurs and then they became extraordinarily extraordinary world-class professionals with a substantial jump in competition stage weight so one person phenomenal guy great dude uh, Jose Raymond um, competed. I think he earned his pro card like three or maybe f- even four times. You um, can go on Muscular Development or maybe Muscle Memory. You can you can find the competitive histories. But he won the, the lightweight, maybe the welter and the middleweight at the USAs or the Team Universe um, like three or four times. And so he, we're talking, you know, he's in the 170s as an amateur as a pro card winning amateur in the days in the days when it wasn't so um easy not that it's easy now of course but it was more difficult then to be at the top of that heap and then he became a 212 212 competitor and he's competing at the top of that weight class so that's 40 pounds so i don't know how exactly he went about that but he was uh, best that they I mean to, to win obviously he was very successful as an amateur and then he became very successful You know, always in the top five, I think, at every single Olympia he did, even up to the very end, um, competitor. Um, Kai Green is someone who was, he may, I trying to remember where he won his pro card, but he competed for years and years. Phenomenal physique. I think he may have competed, and I I may misspeak here, but I believe he was competing in some national organizations early on. He started competing when he was very, very young, um, started training when he was young, but obviously extraordinary genetics. And then at some point in time, Kai started becoming successful enough that something allowed for him to make a, a gigantic quantum leap, which I'm thinking took, took him from like the 220s to you know the 270s, maybe even 280s when he was on stage at his all-time best. And look at him now. So phenomenal amateur and um, phenomenal pro. And the other example, and people kind of call him on this, but um, Ronnie Coleman got his card at the World Amateurs, which was attested at that time, and he was in the I think he was 229, maybe, something like that. And people say, "Well, he was on something. Well, he may have been, may, maybe wasn't, but he'd been competing and training for quite a while. Obviously extraordinarily gifted. Brian Dobson saw that at Metroflex in Texas from the get-go. And then somehow, like, Ronnie competing on, the international, on an international level managed to go from the 220s to the 290s, 70 pounds of difference in stage weight. So that was had in some way, shape, or form. But still the point holds that he was extraordinary. Like, a 220-pound natural? Any, any, I mean, a natural over, like, Doug Miller is a phenomenal body bodybuilder. Like, ridiculous. Has competed for some years. He gets so much shit but part of why he looks so amazing is he's got small joints, he's got good muscle bellies, he trains like an absolute madman, and I believe, I don't know if he went much above 200 pounds in stage weight. He was in the upper 190s, maybe low 200s. So you put him in a baggy short, baggy shirt and a pair of jeans, and he's not going to like eclipse the sun like Big Rami would if you see him in, in public someplace. So... So there are examples. Those are the ones that kind of come to mind. There probably are others that I'm, I'm unaware of of individuals who are just like dominating as uh, in as amateurs and and then made somehow some kind of a qual- and they may have gone from very small amounts. I know of of uh, top level guys who like just really <laughs> kind of guys who are competing at the NPC, the pro qualifier level in the in the states, who were just so genetically gifted. And this isn't this isn't even a, a, a negative pointing to, to them in any way, shape, or form. They just, everything they did worked. And they just kind of knew they were supposed to throw some gear into the mix because that was what other people did. It's kind of like, you know, I, maybe I should chalk my hands when I do this 600-pound deadlift. I don't know. Like, I just pick it up off the ground. It just goes up when I pull. So it's like, maybe I should do some gear when I'm, um, going to try to compete with the big boys at the national level and they do things like you know two shots of 50 milligrams of Deca a week or something like that which would really do nothing but sort of shut down and and replace their endogenous testosterone production so um, there are there are lots of people out there who who are in and relatively speaking not many but given the size of the of the world population population in the in the major countries that are Hosting bodybuilding competitions, there is a sizable number, in an absolute sense, of people who are just extraordinary, um, who are who have then made giant leaps like this. So those three are the ones that kind of come to mind. Big Rami's the obvious example, of course. He was, um, I mean, you look at some of the early pictures of him, and he, he, he it's funny because he pales in comparison to how he looks now. But how he looks now, he's one of the largest, most muscular humans ever to walk the face of the planet so e- even a even a really really large like 99th percentile level bodybuilder is going to look small to him small compared to him to some degree but at his at his early days there's a I think a video came up in the last few months of him like at an expo or in a gym and he's kind of goofing around having fun and he's a big dude but he looks nothing like he looks like now so um there was something that got him to that early level which are obviously genetics and the training, what have you. And there's something, an addition, that takes them to the next level. But at, at either level, they're extraordinary. They're just being buoyed above, to some degree, to a higher level. And I would, sus- I would guess that um, if someone has the genetics that would be downstream of some of the things the androgen receptor turns on in terms of bringing about muscle mass that makes them a really good bodybuilder in the first place, having lots of muscle mass, then the extra that they would get from the gear is also going to converge on those already genetically advantageous uh, mechanisms and pathways they have in place and you're just you're just taking a you know let's say a, a sports car that's already fast and now you're turbocharging it and it's extraordinarily fast it would have been fast regardless and would have beat almost anybody and any you know standard um, stock car on the street or even on a track, but then when you turbocharge it, now you've got a world champion at the upper echelons.
0: Right. Um, oh, you were you gonna keep going? No, no, can... that's,
1: that's, you know, that's, that that's no, that's that was it on that topic. I think there's there's so much here, but yeah, yes, go ahead.
0: Yeah, just um, so then that sort of then still confirms what we generally say that okay, if someone looks phenomenal on gear, probably they would look fairly decent without gear as well. So it's unlikely that the the guy that you're accusing on Instagram with being on gear because he looks crazy and is absurdly muscular. Okay, maybe he's on gear, maybe he's on not maybe he's not on gear. But if he was not on gear then he would look like a D Y E L. Like that's fairly unlikely then.
1: Mm-hmm. I, you know the thing too is that is that there's there's going to be a lot of overlap then. So you have a guy like Doug Miller, you know, phenomenal genetics. He had a, a interview on Fuad Fuad Abiyad's podcast, and Doug does all the same. Like he's he was just about as disciplined as you could possibly be. And I'm going to draw an analogy because it's kind of come up in the um, in the news now. Is um, Jordan Peters has uh, decided he's going to take a step back from from pushing every single lever in his bodybuilding arsenal. And, you know, Jordan is someone I've worked with in the past, 250 pounds on stage at like five, six, like that's just ridiculous amount of muscle mass. And so he's, you know, he, he's got everything pushing and he, Jordan was a strong guy growing up as well. And consider him versus um, Doug Miller, for instance, 50 pounds lighter. Those are kind of two examples of and Doug dots every I and crosses every T. He's not competed for a while now, but when he was doing it, he was doing all the same things that Jordan does. Jordan, there's no missed meals. There's no missed reps. If there's a missed rep, you can listen to his interviews. It will bother him for a week until he can get back to that lift and then dominate that weight again. So Jordan was like a Roman Fritz-level type of nailing everything, every day, every moment, every rep, every set, every meal, every blah, blah, blah. Doug Miller was the same thing. And they both end up creating extraordinary physiques. But what you'll have then, that those sort of two examples are what are kind of close to the upper upper limit, so to speak, is um, guys that who are more average in genetics. And this may be, even be the majority. So Doug Miller is look, going to look better than, I don't know, maybe even probably the majority, I would say actually more than that, now that I think about it, maybe 85, 90% of guys that you would see who who are on gear. They might be a little bit bigger than him, but they don't have some of the other things that create the uh, the illusion of size. And I don't know that anyone, you can't really train any harder than he does, to be honest, like his hardest, and the same thing with Jordan. But you're going to have many guys and a lar- and a large number of them, and this is what's filtering our perception of what it means when someone's on gear, You have this large majority of individuals who are indeed enhanced, who look roughly like Doug Miller does, or not even as good as him. And that's simply a function of them maybe not having the genetics that he has and not doing all the things that he did in an absolutely obsessed way to bring about that look that he would have on stage, where he's dotted every I and crossed every T. So then it's not, statistically speaking, if if you were a gambling man, it would make good sense you line up, you know, ten random physiques or relatively random physiques you picked out that are that are high level, lean bodybuilders, and say, well, which of these are on gear? And you know, you would be right, you know, eight or nine times out of ten, and you would be wrong a smaller percentage of the time. That person might be someone like Doug Miller or a lot of the top level national or natural guys who aren't that. They they look much bigger because of how lean they get, which I f- think a function of how how willing they are to really push their limits psychologically and physiologically. And so it, but it's a good, it's a good bet that those, most of those physiques are going to be guys with a roughly average, you know, somewhere in the sort of the middle, the median, um, two thirds, so to speak of the, the genetic pool. And they've enhanced themselves up to where they look relatively close to what you see in some of the very best natural guys, um, who really are natural, who, um, who get accused of not being natural because they look like the guys, most of the guys who, who look like that are already enhanced, that we know are enhanced, that maybe even have said that or they, they don't claim to not be enhanced. So that's going to filter our perceptions. Every, you've just got these outliers that are just extraordinary examples of the upper ends of what's possible within the human genome in terms of creating a, an extraordinary bodybuilding physique.
0: Hey guys, just a brief interruption. If you like my content, value my opinion, and find my methods for getting and staying lean and building muscle intriguing, then I'm just letting you know that I do have a comprehensive, 100% individualized online coaching service. If you'd like to have me in your corner and use my best methods to achieve your fitness goals, then check out the show description for more information about how you can most easily reach me and apply. I will follow up with you and you and I together will determine if slash exactly how I can best help you to reach your goals. Whether it's my one-on-one or group coaching service, we will find a system that is the best fit for you. Alright, that's it. Let's continue with the show. Yeah, like the way I always um, phrased it uh, intuitively mainly, but it just seemed to make sense to me, is for someone with poor genetics, gear is going to make them look like, you know, if they use it intelligently, whatever, they have proper guidance, then with gear they can get up to looking like a natural with decent genetics. Then someone with average genetics, they get on gear. They can look like someone who could be possibly natural with like the freakiest genetics. So maybe someone like a dog Miller and then someone with above average genetics or someone who is like freaky as a natural, those will be like the Ronnie Coleman's. Like that's kind of how I always Ooh. put it. So um, just one comment I wanted to make because um, like this is something that is very hard for people, I think, to just take at face value just because most people don't understand the A, the dose response relationship between gear and the muscle growth, and also just don't think about these nuances that you outlined with the genetics, androgen receptors, those sorts of things. So the argument of okay, Ronnie Coleman was two twenty. Was he using gear? Maybe, maybe not. But the fact that he went up to (laughs) 295, like maybe that says something about, you know, what he was doing before and after. But I think just for the lay person listening to this, a, a very easy comeback to this could be, well, like before he was using, you know, one gram of gear, after that he was using four grams of gear so of course he went up to 295 so um which i'm fairly sure that that was not the case that would not produce that magnitude of a difference so uh just it's it's tricky to it's tricky for people to understand these uh logical reasonings and actually seeing them as logical you know
1: (laughs) yeah and i think I think part of that is, and this is, we like to compartmentalize as humans. It makes sense; it simplifies things. You know, that's good. This is that's bad, Um, but that dose response is a very individual thing, and and like I like I said with the with the uh, the notion of converging pathways, is that you take someone who's got who's predisposed to put on muscle mass very readily, it may very well be that their dose response, the shape of it the maximal response that they would get or the maximal adaptation that could be evoked could be even greater. Um, maybe if everything is is amplified to some degree, so they end up with a natural physique that's extraordinary and maybe even the extent to which they grow um, with a given dose is greater, relatively speaking. Who knows? There may be some synergy there. I don't I don't know the details of that. And it's probably, and the, and the thing is, and I can't even really speculate because I, I think it's probably, Highly variable among individuals. Um, you will see people, and you can, you probably know, have friends like this. Um, this is sort of where the notion of, uh, of somatotyping has come from. And you know, there's what's a rule of thumb that can kind of you know be somewhat helpful. A lot of times, these the stereotypes that we come up with, um, they they generally don't serve us as humans, in in many situations. But sometimes they can help as a sort of a starting point. So that sort of descriptive somatotyping uh, paradigm where you've got ecto and endo and mesomorphs can be kind of helpful because you will find that people um, and uh, um, the sports gene is actually a great book if someone wants to look into that and read that it goes into a lot of this in, in greater detail than I, than I could and that I will hear obviously but you'll find that individuals have genetic proclivities for certain types of athletic endeavors and this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that that we have some variability just in case one particular um, adaptive capacity is more more viable for for uh, survival than another and some individuals you know you might have known someone like this growing up they could they could run a, a mile in you know six minutes the first time they tried it as an 11 year old something like that and when they put themselves to work trying to become a better endurance runner, that was their, that was their proclivity, that was their, um, their ability, and they became very, very good at endurance running. We take that same person who has the build for that, they don't have unnecessary weight, they're naturally slim, slender, quote-unquote ectomorphic, that person is, is not likely to have the type of genetics at that extreme end of being very very adaptable to that kind of exercise stress they're not going to have the genetics that also would allow them to put on a lot of muscle mass on the other end so sometimes you do find individuals like that dave palumbo is one person who comes to mind he was an endurance athlete for a while i don't know i don't know if he was as good of an endurance runner you see, there's one particular picture that always pops up when you if you were to google google that but he was pretty thin which he is now to this day it's funny it's as if his constitutive genetic expression is that of a very thin, quote unquote, ectomorphic, um, long-distance runner. Because he looks—I mean, I haven't seen him in person for a while now—but if you look at him on his podcast, sitting there, he's extraordinarily lean. I don't think he's—I don't think he's—I don't think he's abusing T3 or clenbuterol or or anything to keep his uh, his body fat low. That's just sort of his natural constitutive. Um, body fat level which it looks like he's probably 5%. He's so lean. So, but he managed also through sheer power of will in part two to put on a massive amount of muscle mass. So, he was probably pretty responsive to the PEDs and uh he also like he had this McDonald's diet which you can google and find which is just just sounds absolutely <laughs> disastrously diabolical. It sounds really really tough but he would he was taking massive amounts of food and he managed to force that adaptation upon himself. Let um, me bring us up another topic. I guess we can maybe segue. I don't want to cut you off if you got some comments there. But, but one of the things, and you'll see this in, to varying degrees, and it seems to be something that that may differentiate. This is just sort of a, an armchair layperson's perspective. Is that there are psychoactive effects of steroids, and um, and they, they do they do some a lot of actually really. Interesting things, some negative things on the on the brain, but orals in particular tend to have tend to have acute psychoactive effects that you can see in increasing aggression. Um, the old uh, the old saying that you can't spell asshole without Anadrol, even though the letters don't really match up. Um, there's some truth to that, but there's an aggressiveness, um, an impulsivity, uh, a reactivity that comes about through use of steroids, and from what I've what I gathered, some of this has to do with uh, activity of the gabinergic system, which which inhibits, reduces serotonin's effects on the prefrontal cortex. And that's important for regulating your amygdala, which is sort of your fear and aggression center. So you know when we when we see something that sort of like you see a stick on the ground that you for a split second looks like a, a snake to you and maybe you've got a, a, a fear of snakes. Um, it's your prefrontal cortex, which takes a split second to sort of register and make sense of that and inhibit the amygdala. Well, that whole system is is impacted by gear. So you've got basically a, a psychological scenario when someone is enhanced with gear, depending on the person, whereby the training efforts and the I'm going to get after this, like gr- rise and grind type of mentality is put into, um kind Of a super physiological state, which will allow them to push harder and do things differently than they might do otherwise. And what I think this may explain again, just sort of hypothesizing here um, it's only one piece of this puzzle, I think, too, because hypogonadism can also play a role. But is why you'll see some guys who really only put all the pieces together when they're on, and they, when, when they, if they were to come, if they have an on period and off period, that off period is. Is basically in some cases it could be like just nothing. Some some guys won't even train or diet or do anything bodybuilding wise unless they're on. And I think some part of that could be that there is what is probably socially <laughs> is a psychological disadvantage, um, but is I think a psychological advantage in terms of getting in the gym and sort of being an animal and getting after it that gear can have with people. And there there's there's a bias I think. Um, and it's hard to know. A lot of the studies looking at the sort of the the psychological profiles of of anabolic steroid users are in individuals who've been using them for a while, so it's not like they've, you know, I haven't seen any studies where they've sort of uh, done the psychological profiling of, of young boys, let's say, and then followed up 10, 15, 20 years later and tried to discern which one of those had used, which of those that cohort had used steroids, and how maybe um, some of their psycho their psychological profile was predictive of their desire to do that, but it seems like um, because the natural competitors don't have that on or off um, going on they they tend to they're it's a, i mean it's a highly respected endeavor to to grind the way many natural competitors do, knowing that for instance especially among the scene now with social media these days, that you're not going to come across as this absolute monstrous um, you know, behemoth of a human in the way that many guys can because they've got genetic gifts to that effect. And they don't maybe train as hard, they don't die as hard, they don't do the things that the naturals do. But those individuals have a more, quote-unquote, just sort of say a hardened mindset to dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's which may be something that reflects just how they're psychologically wired in the first place, genetically, or maybe a function of what was nurtured in them and their their family of origin or their their upbringing. So there's a difference there, I think, that um, uh, is probably, it probably is reflected in some of the very staunch opinions, sometimes negative, that you'll, you'll hear amongst individuals who think, you know, the steroids are cheating, like, you know all the sort of like this is just bullshit. Why are you doing that? Because it does indeed make everything easier to some degree. It gives you that buoy. It's like it's like um, it'd be like you know you're you're swimming a hundred meter uh, um, swim and you've got you know flippers on you know that make you go twenty percent faster. It's you know you claim then that you you know you swam the hundred meters in, um forty nine seconds. You know it's your world class. Look like you had flippers on. Take the flippers off and. You're not even in my category. So there's some psychological uh, effects of the steroids, and and this probably isn't the um, this isn't the case certainly with everyone, but I, I suspect for some individuals, I can imagine this being a scenario um, that's going to color our perspective on steroid users. Is you have an individual who is sort of not willing to go full in. They they want to get the physique that they want, and you know you'll hear many coaches and and um, quote-unquote um, celebrities or people are well known uh, what's the word that people use uh, influencers say they get uh, uh, inquiries from young guys who want to go right to the gear and it may be that there is some subsection of individuals who just for whatever reason don't have the dedication the, the dis- discipline the desire the um, the sort of the love of the of the pursuit of bodybuilding, such that rather than sort of digging in for years and years and years to see what they can do, realize that they're, the flippers are there, that the buoys are there, that they can put the floaties on you know, and, and stay afloat and swim much more easily in the bodybuilding pool. And so those individuals, um, because of their, the, the, the nature of their psychological makeup, may, might not even bodybuild if it were not for the fact that they, could, they can do much better when they're buoyed by the, uh, by the gear use. So that's another aspect of our, of our kind of perception of, of what they do and who they do for what. You take someone like, it's funny, um, some people say this too, and of course, obviously, you know, opinions are going to be, be highly variable, but, you know, Jordan is an example of someone because individual use of steroids is completely legal in the, in, in the UK where he is, and he's been completely open to what he does because he wants, he, that's just the nature of who he is. He's an honest guy and it's also educational as well but people people also see how he trains and and i know this just from like literally this was even years ago spending time with them when i first went over to the uk corin and and jordan hosted me basically They they we did a, um, a fortitude training seminar and then we went over to body power and they took care of me and i got to see like we we're on the motorway when it's time for a meal if it's 3 p.m we'd stop we'd just pull into a <laughs> Uh, you know, McDonald's, what have you. And they would eat the meals that they had in the back of the trunk of the car because that's, it was mealtime and you ate the meal. We got back on the road. That's how it worked. And they've been doing that for decades now. And so Jordan isn't someone who obviously is very far from someone who falls into that category of, you know, I'm just going to make it easier on myself and start using gear. But I think there are, this is the point I was kind of getting to, I think there are um, individuals who who may fall in that category to some degree. And then, of course, you set a standard for yourself. If someone has been using gear, this is where the maybe the all drugs phenomenon comes from, whereby a good bit of of that that aggression, um, the, the the mental mindset that the gear creates in those individuals, and this varies too. Some people kind of lose their shit on gear, and some people it doesn't. You can't hardly tell, um, but some individuals, because of the mentality, this may be a large effect of the, maybe one of the largest effects, the gear in those individuals is that it's impacting their psychology in a way that drives them to do more of the bodybuilding behaviors that that make them successful as a bodybuilder. And when they come off, they've lost maybe one of the key advantages that they had was just the feeling that they get when being super physiological in terms of antigens, the things that are maybe even sort of subconscious that are going on in terms of ability to turn on aggression. And then, of course, you know, post-cycle depression is um, is a, is an issue there too. And if they're not well informed as to how to how to manage something like that, you've got a you've got a scenario where you can see someone, um, which is a, a common way that people sort of point to, is as to tell whether someone's on gear or not, is their gigantic weight fluctuations back and forth, or conditioning fluctuations, or what have you. They're all over the place. So you look to those. It's sort of like, uh, you know, you're looking at what's the clearest way to identify X, Y, or Z. And when you have someone who's, who's displaying sort of uh, clear and what some people might say are obvious signs in that way, that there's something different when they're on or they're off, then that, be, then that colors individuals' opinions of what gear does to everyone. Where that's certainly not the case. Some people aren't using it to buoy themselves. Some people don't need it. To continue to train hard when they come off. So it's again, I think the, the, it's a subjective, um, opi- it's a subjective opinion that comes from the human mind, which is is um, pretty limited, really, to some degree, which is why we have science to kind of at least, you know, constrain ourselves with some objective mathematical um, facts and figures, but that subjective opinion of of what gear is doing to an individual is something that is uh, is not isn't entirely to be counted on. Our, our brains tend to trick us in ways that um that we want it to unconsciously.
0: So um all right, so we made a commitment to not make the podcast ten hours. So <laughs> in the in- interest of that, I will ask my first uh, specific question related to how all of this influences what people do with their training and diet. So first of all, training. And this is something that I've heard a lot of differing uh, views on and what the science says. So I'm sure you will have some interesting insights here. So training volume for one. Obviously, one of the first things that I always hear is androgens, they elevate recovery to a crazy level. So if you were overreaching or pushing overreaching before when you did 20 sets now you will be able to do 30 it will be basically impossible to push yourself over the edge so high volume training others say basically complete opposite like when i was a netty i was able to train with really high volumes like those would destroy me now because the loads are much heavier so both make a lot of intuitive sense like okay now you're able to handle like 1.5 or two times the lows compared to what you were doing before. So of course you cannot tolerate as many sets anymore. But the other side also makes sense. Like, well, like if you were able to handle this much workload, now it's going to be even more. So, um, what, what's the deal there? What is your insight on mm-hmm.
1: that? Uh, context, context, context. So, um, you take someone for instance, who's been, been training along, maybe they've they've been been completely natural. Could be their first cycle, maybe they haven't been on a cycle for a while, and then you toss in you know a substantial cycle on top of what they're currently doing. Um, now they've got that that extra recovery ability available to them, and they're going to start making gains at an accelerated rate, which is what you see in the in the studies. This is what you see, you know, time and time again. This is why people use gear because it makes you grow faster. So, yes, you'll have a sort of a period of being superhuman, but then at some point in time, and this is sort of um, what you see if you look at this through more of kind of a cross-sectional lens, is you take someone who was, let's say, we'll just take a incline pressing, 185 pounds per sets of 10. They're natural. That's where they are. And then they work their way up to doing 275 for sets of 10. Um, so they're, do, they're now stronger. Because they've they they're on gear. That's what brought them from the 185 to 275, and they're actually now able to create greater inroads into their recovery, um, and they're able to do that because the gear is there. But at some point in time, at that level of anabolic assistance, PED assistance, they're gonna they're gonna start to level off. So what they this is why this buoy analogy seems to be a helpful one to kind of latch onto this notion is that now they they're training in a way that they literally they wouldn't be able to evoke that kind of a stimulus they simply wouldn't be able to lift those weights. They're doing something that would have destroyed them um, at in a natural state. Of course they couldn't even have done it. It's so It's so beyond their capabilities. So the stimulus they can evoke is much greater and their ability levels are much greater. So they're basically being buoyed at a higher level of performance and recovery that creates sort of a steady state for them until they do something different. Add more food, add more gear. that's the least of the good options to some degree. but so you've got that scenario. The second uh possibility that you talked about where someone feels like as a natural they they could just go to town and you know train like a banshee, do many sets, and then years later they're they've geared up could be explained by the scenario where someone, and this actually fits in with what I was talking about before, the psychological effects that gear will bring about an individual, that those aggressive effects, is that now they've gone basically the nature of the training stimulus that they can evoke is over time become much, much better, much more improved. When they're when their training is a natural, and you know, the studies looking at reps and reserve have demonstrated this. You take many people who are relative beginners and 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 coaches out there, the personal trainers will, will. This is why people go to personal trainers because you ask someone near the end of what they think is the end of their set, how many reps in reserve they may have, and um, they may say two or three. And then if you coach them through the rest of the set, they may get eight or nine. That's been demonstrated in the research. So people will tend to underestimate their their capabilities. So early on, it's a natural. Someone might have been able to get away with say fifteen or twenty sets but they weren't simply able to train as hard as they can after another five or 10 years of training. So those guys who are reflecting back on their natural days in the years past are comparing when they couldn't train nearly as hard as they can now. And that's one reason why they couldn't get away with as many sets. On top of that, the gear may have actually been part of the reason why they can train so hard. So you take someone who, uh, and there's some interesting um, I, I, one of my favorite studies is actually a placebo study. You may have heard me talk about, it. I've mentioned it, I don't know how many times on different podcasts, but there's a placebo effect that comes with your on top of the, or for many many people, of course, the susceptibility to placebo effect varies by individuals as well. There's a genetic component there. Uh, last I looked, there was like 28 different genes that had been associated with the extent to which a placebo affects someone's uh, responses or perception to a given stimulus. So you take someone who has a good, strong placebo effect, and then for whatever reasons, their energy receptors, they have um, the nature of their brain, whatever it may be. Maybe they were somewhat low in testosterone initially, and now when you give them a given, a given cycle, it's even more of an upgrade, so to speak, of antigen uh, delivery when they go on that cycle. Now they have a tremendous psychological effect, and they go from being, you know, a pretty hard trainer, you know, look like they pushed it pretty hard, and maybe they stopped one or two reps shy of what a true failure is. Now they become this this raging maniac, which can be a good and very, very fun thing to do, so nothing against raging maniacs. I'm a raging maniac in the gym as often as I possibly can be without breaking myself down. It's a very, very fun way to train. But now they turn their training up to an entirely different level um, because the psychological effects the literally the the neuropharmacological effects of the gear and now they know they've got everything they've got everything in place like there's nothing left so they start doing things differently throughout their life you know their their food is more on on uh, the first time you know guys will report this first time they go on they start doing everything better so to speak they don't get lazy as some people might perceive they actually um, realize that, you know, hey, you know what, I've got I've got all, everything in place now. I might as well dot every I and cross every T and be better than I was. And that will happen with the training as well, too, because they want to get everything they possibly can out of it just because they realize the health risks are there, the psychological effects, the placebo effects. They recognize there's a financial investment here. It's like, you know, I got enough for an eight or 12-week cycle. I got to get everything I possibly can from this because, once I'm done, I'm done. I don't know when I'll do my next one. Multitude of reasons where they could be more motivated to train really, really hard. So you've got those, those different situations where the, the gear itself is increasing recovery as you're gaining strength. Of course, that's what you're going to see You know, as the progressive overload is reflected in greater strength and muscle mass gains. And then you've got the situation where people can't train as much because, as, with as many sets because they're training so much harder now their effort levels are so much increased on top of the fact that they're using, you know, maybe twice or even three times the loads that they were using previously. Um, and that's a occur- that's going to happen over time with anyone who sort of stays in the game and is able to uh, really push themselves. I mean, I know, um, you know, as hard as I've sort of learned how to train, if I ever, if, and, and I, and I do this every once in a while, I have to be kind of, kind of careful, but I really like to totally just flip the switch and, um, it's a kind of probably a scary thing to watch when I do that. It, you know, happens like hopefully I get to do it once every workout where it's just go for broke and it's like, oh my gosh, this person is on a suicide mission. What is he doing? You can gain that level of that, but that's something I cultivated over nearly 40 years of training. I train hard as a kid, you know, but I wasn't doing that when I was a teenager or in my tw- probably in my 20s I was starting to, but now I've, I'm able to able to do some do some things in training when I when I feel like it's right and it's safe, you know, that I won't won't explode every joint that's that's uh involved in my body by trying to push that hard, I can I can do things I never could do. So but obviously I can't get away with training that way. Um with as many sets. There's just no way, shape or form that could possibly happen. So I think both of those perspectives make sense, but as I said it's a function of the context for the individual.
0: Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So um, another thing which is it's not strictly training related per se, but I'm just interested in what your take on this is. Uh, one thing that I hear a lot is um, steroid users need to be a lot more careful in the gym because they are at much greater of a risk at uh, injury so is this um is this true in a general sense and if so is that solely down to the greater loads they're using and um if so is the general edit true that uh, the adaptation of the of your muscles are like way out competing that of your connective tissue uh, or maybe it's a compound specific thing so some compounds just have such a profound effect on on your neurology that simply like yeah neurologically you're able to express a lot greater strength so then you are actually at um, greater risk of injury or is this true that like, yeah, your muscles are outgrowing your connecti- connective tissues so you can snap yourself up really easily?
1: <laughs> I, think, I think it's a little bit of all of the above, to be honest. Right. Um, so let's see, where do we go here? So obviously, if anyone ge- geared up or not, if over time you're working your way up from you know, 200, 300-pound squats to 500, 600-pound squats there's a greater risk of injury there. Um, like the greatest example of the, sort of the most obvious example that comes to mind is uh, bench pressers. And this was really a big deal when people were wearing some of the heavy-duty shirts that they'd wear. But you've got a, someone who's trying to do a max bench press, and they've got a very, very specific groove they want to bring the bar down in. And so they're, they're basically the, the line of, of press pressing power that they have is um, is sort of riding a wave there. So if you go too far forwards or backwards, superior or inferiorly with the bar and get out of that pressing groove, the bar can very rapidly go the wrong direction. You'll see that sometimes when guys are, you know, they haven't pulled anything. There's been no injury. They brought that about. They'll just fall out of their groove. And that's the type of thing, obviously, that with a lighter weight, they they wouldn't have so much of an issue with. And so there's there is just the fact that you've got the heavier weight. And if you fall out of that very highly tuned neurological groove, that was part of what allows you to lift that much weight, that's gonna play a role, I think, in the injury potential at being stronger versus being weaker. So then you've got what I think you sort of suggested there, the situation where someone is making tremendous strength gains, and what, what happens is, in, in large part, a good bit of the strength gains that you make, relatively speaking, as a natural, are neurological. Um, you might find, you know, take someone who goes from a starting weight of 160, let's say, to 190. So they put on 30 pounds of, let's say, just pure muscle mass. And that's and that's a pretty, that's not a bad lifetime increase in muscle mass for anyone. 100, 190 pounds, and if you're getting into, you know, 10 or 12 percent body fat, you're going to look. It's going to be pretty clear that you lift, unless you're wearing a parka or something like that. So. But that person in doing that might go from a bench press of 135 to a bench press of 275. So they've, they've doubled their bench press, but they haven't doubled their muscle mass. They might have had 70 or 80 kilos of, or 70, or 80 pounds of muscle mass. I think standard reference span is like 32 kilograms of muscle mass at, at 154 pounds, 70 kilos. So that person ha- certainly hasn't doubled the muscle mass, but they've, more, more, they've doubled their strength. So neurological gains are, are normally um, much, much larger when you're talking about a natural competitor, whereas someone then who has, we tossed out some numbers earlier in the, in the podcast, who now has, you know, put on, let's say, 100 pounds of muscle mass. So they're the 150 pound, 160 pound person. And over the course of all their, of their training, they get themselves up to 250, 260, something like that. And if you're during a period of, of growth, especially, where you're, where you're literally putting weight on the bar every training session and, going, and basically going to new territory with each one of those those sessions, because you're getting lots of muscle mass that you didn't have, so there's a larger contribution there, you've got um, basically sort of a, an incongruence between what you normally would be attaining skill-wise, to contribute to that strength, so the relative contribution of muscle mass to your strength is greater than it would be otherwise if you weren't geared up, if the person wasn't enhanced. So there's that, that, that uh, sort of lagging of the skill set that comes with those heavier heavier lifts. You can imagine that the same nat- person got to those strength levels naturally it would take longer um, to do so and uh, they would have developed the skill of lifting that weight to a greater extent than someone who just sort of blows up, so to speak, strength and muscle mass wise. Um, the other other aspect, this isn't always the case, not one bit. Sometimes people can be doing your, everything perfectly and, uh, and they still have an injury, but if you do have some of that disinhibition, the things we talked about with sort of releasing aggression, um, that can happen, and a lot of people will use things like Anadrol or Superdrol, or Halo is a good one that, that powerlifters are known for using to increase aggression and strength. You've got this sort of, uh, you're, you're, it's, here's another analogy, kind of fits with one we talked about before. Now you've sort of added some turbo to the speed that you have, to the lifting capabilities, the strength that you have in the gym, but, uh, and I'm not a, a dragster by any. Any stretch. Although I have a motorcycle, I like to drive really fast, but I keep them under control. You can imagine, though, we see dragsters if they when they flip the turbo, or you take a add turbo and a nitro in on a um, a car, then your ability to steer isn't quite as good. So you get a little bit off trajectory with that extra nitro boost that you add in. So you've got someone who's got that sort of um, that extra gear that they've unleashed—that maybe they would only unleash if they were if they were geared up, pardon the pun—and now you have a greater propensity to, to maybe get to go to sloppy form, to um, pick up weights that you have newfound strength and ability to handle, but don't quite have the skill set to handle if you get in that that very unusual situation where you're starting to lose your groove. So there's a possibility there. Where another way to look at this is the um, the arousal performance curve. So that's usually um, depicted as an inverse U. So for any, like, let's say, um, you're playing chess, you know, the arousal performance curve for someone who's playing chess is going to generally make it advantageous that you're uh, It's going to favor not being highly aroused. You don't, like, you know, walk up to the, uh, the the chess board like you would to the squat bar, you know, and pound your head against the table and then make your move. Look at the pieces that make your move. Um, you want to be have a certain level of arousal. So obviously that level of arousal will be way beyond what you want for chess. And the same thing comes, and it's varies for different individuals, to lifting. So uh, Ben Chow, who listeners might know, um, he's someone who has a, a very highly skilled squat execution. And he has honed that over the years. And he's had to keep that honed. He went through an injury years ago, and he's talked about this on Thu Ed's podcast and other places too. So he goes up to the squat bar, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm misspeaking if Ben ever happens to hear this, but he goes to the squat bar, but he has a relatively calm mindset because he can create the motor drive. He can disinhibit to pick up the heavy weights, but he has to have his wits about him, so to speak, in order to execute what, what for him is a very skilled motion. So you take someone who's so amped up because they're geared up, and maybe they even used as a pre-workout um, gear to that effect, and they could then be too far along that that um, arousal curve to have optimal performance, and that op- that sub-optimal performance could mean an increase in injury risk or injury potential. And the other thing I think you uh, yeah you pointed this too there there are some um, there's some studies suggesting. Malformation of the collagen in the um, in the connective tissue that could, uh, and this you know is not seen with all antigens, but that could that could possibly increase injury risk so that you've you've got greater contractile strength that's being produced, and um, the structural integrity of the muscle that's brought about by the connective tissue. So each muscle is an organ, and it's got all the different tissue types in there, the four tissue types: epithelial, vascular, connective and muscular. So it's skeletal muscle, but you've got connective tissue, which is the, the different um, connective tissue layers, epi- epimysium, paramecium, and endomysium, the fascia on the outer layer of the muscle. You've got vessels in there um, and epithelial t- tissue on the inside of the vessels. So you've got a whole organ in each and every, every muscle. And if that connective tissue is somehow malformed, and this has been demonstrated, there's a study in resistance trained individuals that had and hadn't used gear they didn't see like gigantic differences Um, but what they did was a a biopsy of the patellar tendon and there was a difference in stiffness there so um, you've got potential that there's sort of a somewhat defective or imbalanced structural integrity in the connective tissue relative to the very large size of the muscle and another way to look at this, and I'm by no means uh, an engineer, but another way to sort of think about it is you literally have created super physiological strength levels through the, the sheer size of the muscle mass and obviously these neurological um, effects we've talked about before. So uh, a mechanical engineer, for instance, will know in trying to plan the or an architectural engineer, trying to plan um, the construction of a building, what sort of stresses and strains that building will have to hold up against. So um, what's the little, the, the, the fable about the three piggies, I think, building their houses out of straw and wood and brick. So if you, if you remember that one, this might help. I can't remember the details of that, that parable, but.
0: Yeah, not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, you obviously, if you have a small hut, like a dog house that's gonna be low to the ground, in a very windy area you can maybe build that out of a, a very light wood but if you wanted to build a skyscraper you're going to have to use the right kind of steel and brick and mortar etc so that it can it can handle those forces and those loads so the size of the in the, the general amount of force that's that a given material has to be able to withstand is has been constructed is going to be de- determined by an architect engineer and also nature's sort of sort of constructor muscles and constructed the connective tissue that's in those muscles based on what, what they've they're been exposed to over the course of evolution. So now you take a situation where you've, you've a super strength and supersized the skeletal muscle, but you still have the same materials that were intended for a use which has been far surpassed because of the super, super physiological status that you invoke with the gear use. So now, simply being, regardless of some defect in the actual structural integrity, the mechanical integrity of the connected tissue, now you've just got a bigger muscle that may not be well-suited um, for producing those kinds of loads and may be more likely to, to, to tear simply because it's going beyond its original um, intended archi- architectural constraint constraints. constraints. So. That's another possibility that's just sort of sp- pure speculation, but another way to think about sort of a more kind of obvious analogous situation is one of the things that can limit a lot of guys for putting on size is uh, their gastrointestinal integrity their gastrointestinal system. so you take a guy who uh, who start maybe just sort of constitutively if he weren't lifting weights, may have really good genetics for putting on muscle mass, and the whole idea of lifting anyway it's like it's sort of uh, it's in uh, an unnatural act that is how I sometimes express it. So it's kind of a, you're producing a muscular callus by lifting and lowering the load repeatedly, trying to make it bigger. And some people have better genetics for that. So they become better bodybuilders if they pursue that. But you take someone who, you know, in a in a world, you know, thousand years ago, that person, there would have been no such thing as bodybuilding to uh, to interest them. And they would have done something completely different and they would have stayed at 160, 170 pounds but instead, in modern day, they become a bodybuilder and they're good at it. And they decide, well, you know, I might as well see if I can become the best. And they start using gear. And now they're hovering around 100 or 250. They've got an extra 100 pounds or more of muscle mass. And they have metabolism that has also increased to a substantial degree. So they're going to have to eat in order to maintain that muscle mass. And if they want to gain more, eat beyond that. But, I mean, there are obviously going to be some effects. You're not supersizing the gastrointestinal tract. And the way that you're supersizing the skeletal muscle and the musculoskeletal system, and sort of a um, jacking up the brain's ability to push through the efforts of training. So your GI is still the old GI, the 160 pound person, as sort of nature had quote unquote intended, but you've now nurtured a body mass that has a metabolism that is now, and can for some people, exceed what they can keep up with in terms of the gastrointestinal tract. So. I bring that up only as sort of an analogy, analogy for what you're kind of doing to some degree with, this, with enlarging the skeletal muscles so you have this tremendous amount of strength. It could be that just the, the material engineering that went into designing those skeletal muscles for the tasks that they would have otherwise been, been subject to um, didn't have in mind 1,000-pound squats or 800-pound squats and 500-pound bench presses. So that, could, that simply could be one reason why you might see greater injury risk in guys who are really really big and really really
0: strong who've been geared. Right. Yeah, it's um it's interesting because it just brought to mind that a lot of these gear using bodybuilders that I see are using very high reps. They often do a lot of drop sets and just just these kind of pumpy stuff in the in the gym that in the evidence-based community we often talk shit about. And But it appears to be working for for these guys. And um, it's interesting because, you know, strength and size and how all of that interrelates and just uh, being very progressive with your training and purposeful with progressive overload, that's still a somewhat debated uh, topic, like how exactly that relationship works. But um, is it something that people who do use have to be very attentive to or it's just something that is going to happen anyway so they can just get away with doing not super methodical training um, or maybe there is actually some advantage to doing this type of training that they often do like I've heard that androgens are preferentially growing slower twitch muscle fibers so that is one thing that I've heard Or maybe it's the injury management component of the whole thing. So um, maybe strength in some aspects is almost a negative for someone who has the capability to get so absurdly strong. Whereas for most naturals, it's not a real concern. Like you're I'm sorry, but you're not going to get to the point where you are going to be benching, you know, 200 kilos for reps anyway. So we might as well get you as strong as possible. (laughs) And again, anecdotally, those people that are naturals that are doing that type of training. So a lot of pump sets and let's just progress in sets and just do more and more volume, but not focus on progression. Your bench has not increased at all in the past three months. Usually you can pretty much bank on the fact that their chest is also not bigger than it was before. So how is this different between netties and those that are using?
1: So there's so many you threw out so many things. I'll just here's here's one thing I think um, just toss out some basic notions and try not I'll resist the temptation to go in too much depth on these. Um, and I don't mean to sound like arrogant, but it's just like, there's so many things to kind of cover to address what you just said. We'd be here for days. Um, there's so much cool stuff there. So one of the things is that obviously progressive overload in some way, shape or form, um, needs to happen. So, um, and you look at someone, like you said, who's maybe doing a lot of a high volume, but they're leaving lots of reps in the tank. They're no longer that effective reps notion does have some, um, utility here in describing the fact that what they're they're no longer progressing the stimulus if they're doing um, a multitude of sets none of which are really pushing them in a way that creates a novel stimulus for muscle growth and if you're not seeing a gain in strength then you're not seeing you're not going to see there's no really progressive overload at play there so you're not going to expect any adaptation to come from that on the other hand we know that tension you know people like to say you know volume is the Driver of muscle growth or what have you, like obviously you have to have some amount of volume, you can't just do you know just one set that's been pretty much shown one set a week is not going to cut it. you need to do a little bit more than that it varies upon the person, but mechanical tension is is certainly important, and what i what i don't know which which would be really a, it would have to be a pretty um there's various ways you could approach this experimentally is is what the dose response for mechanical tension is. probably varies according to fiber types so for a given given motor unit or given fiber let's say imagine someone is has gotten to the point where they're really really strong and now they're doing fairly high reps or fairly high volume it may be that as long as they are coming close enough to failure so they're getting those quote-unquote effective reps that you don't have to train um, super super heavy and do, you know, 600 pound, 700 pound squats. You can do 500 pound squats, do 12 to 15 reps per set. And that's gonna max out the tension that you need, especially in those last few reps, when Henneman's size principle is gonna dictate that you're, you're calling upon um, all the motor units that you have available and with an ever increasing firing rate, just so you can get those last few reps. It may be that you've got all the tension that you need to maximally activate those pathways. So there's something to say there that when someone's gotten to where they've they've trained for long enough and they know how to train hard, that they can train with a little bit lighter weight relative to their strength levels, which of course is going to be helpful for injury for the reasons we just kind of talked about. So there's something to say there. So let me tell you about, um. I'll try to piece some other things together because this is kind of a... It's very fascinating um, kind of uh, number of ideas that intersect. So there's some of the studies um, from the 90s with bodybuilders looking at trying to figure out what's going on with their, uh, and a lot of these, they don't necessarily report that in these studies, but a lot of these bodybuilders were obviously using, I, su- I suspect were using steroids. Some of them they did actually report. What I'm thinking, like half of the ones they studied had, at least half, it's like five out of nine maybe remember the numbers properly but is you would find in bodybuilders and Jose Antonio has pointed this out in his he's got some nice review articles on the the notion of hyperplasia versus hyper hypertrophy as a way to produce muscle growth we sometimes use hypertrophy synonymously with an increase in muscle size or muscle growth but hypertrophy just means an enlargement of the muscle cell hyperplasia will be an increase in the number of cells so you could actually have hyperplasia without any increase in the size of an organ, like a muscle being an organ. Typically, though, if you're in- incurring a-, a stimulus in the gym and, you- and you're getting growth and hyperplasia is part of that, then the two will coincide. They'll go hand in hand. So back to these studies of these, these high-level bodybuilders, is they were finding that in them, and this may be where, you- where you, um, you're connecting the idea of antigens impacting type 1 fibers more so than type 2s, is they were finding a relatively high percentage of type 1 fibers in muscles that were twice as big as the untrained control muscles. But those fibers were re- normal size, not of different size. So you've kind of got sort of two basic scenarios through which you could explain this. One one is that um, hyperplasia was at work, and somehow over the course of time, um, these the growth that came about in those muscles was by increasing the number of fibers and the fiber size was staying the same or somehow sort of the facetious explanation is that these bodybuilders for whatever reason um, maybe this this genetic uh, um, their genes were such that they were born with twice as many muscle fibers that were extraordinarily small and they spent 10 years training just to make those fibers of average size and in doing so of course they made the muscle um, twice as big because they had twice as many fibers. That seems much less likely. So hyperplasia is, seems like that's one of the sort of indirect pieces of evidence that it may be at work. And back in that day, you had many of those bodybuilders doing sort of the higher volume Arnold Schwarzenegger inspired regimes. So one of the things that Jose did, he, he has a model of muscle growth. It's the, um, the weighted uh, stretch overload model that they'd use do with quail. And basically, what they do in that model, the standard way to do it, was to take some percentage of the animal's body weight, and they would hang that off the animal's wing, and they'd measure the increase in muscle size. And they generally have several cohorts of animals that they would um, they would put to sleep and measure the the weight of the it's the anterior latissimus dorsi. So the human analogous to, analogy to this would be imagine someone straps a dumbbell to your arm, and you have to hold that dumbbell all the time, everywhere you go. It's always hanging. And it would produce some hypertrophy in your trap just because of the continuous stretch and tension. It's a stretch overload model. And you see tremendous muscle growth. And you actually see hyperplasia in that model. Um, So what uh, Jose did, and this was the, as far as I know, this is the, um, the greatest relative increase in skeletal muscle size of any study that has been published. I've never seen anything higher than this. I think I'm, I think Jose might even refer to it as such in one of his review articles or somewhere. And they, uh, they use sort of, um, a bodybuilding, a weight training inspired regime. And instead of just hanging the weight and like watching it over the course of, you know, 28 months to see what it did to to muscle size, they started off with a lighter weight and I think hung it. They had a sort of a protocol they followed where they hung it for a couple days and they took a day off for recovery, which bodybuilders obviously know is you, you, you don't grow in the gym, you grow when you're recovering. And uh, then they put on a heavier weight. So they employed progressive overload over time and hung it for two days and took it off for a day. And then hung it for two days took off for a day. And maybe it was one day on, one day off later on. And did that over the course of 28 days. And I think they increases the muscle size by 325%, something like that. So if you take, you know, your average 175 pounder, maybe it says 35 pounds of muscle mass and, and um, you know, more than triple their muscle mass, you'd have given that person, you know, hundred, another hundred pounds of muscle mass and pure muscle mass. Of course, you couldn't do this in the whole body, but the relative growth there is just absolutely ridiculous. And they also, when they would, so what they do, as I mentioned before, they had cohorts of animals. So they, they maybe, a week, I think it was every week they, they would sacrifice a group of the animals. They're all undergoing the, so the protocol and um but they wanted to see what was going on in between so they'd sacrifice a set of the animals and initially you saw what you would expect is that the the fibers were um you're getting larger and that was largely explaining the increase in the muscle's weight they just weigh the whole muscle and then they'd take a take a look at the fibers themselves and they also saw that there was generally a shift from the type 2 to the type 1 muscle fibers and this is what you see almost universally when you employ any type of exercise routine or any type of increase in muscle activity be it electrical stimulation or running or weight training or swimming whatever it is especially if an untrained to a sort of a trained state you tend to shift from lesser of those type twos to more of the type ones only there's a couple exceptions to that plyometric types of training might shift in the other direction it can go the other way and if you do like a high frequency stimulation um, electrical stimulation, you can get a shift in the other way. So, but typically that's what you see. And of course, this was a 24 hour stimulus when the weights were hanging from those those birds' wings. So then over the course of the next, the latter part of the, the I think it was 28 days, they, um, they started seeing that actually uh, the muscle kept on growing at each check-in point along the regime, but the fiber size started decreasing. And they started getting many, many more type one fibers, so you started having a fiber type shift. It's an extraordinary stimulus, so you can see that with these types of these types of experimental models and they shifted towards type one and they got smaller, which of course was telling you that hyperplasia was indeed going on because the muscle's growing, and the average fiber size is getting was going down, and that sort of makes sense so When fibers split, um, or when you see a hyperplasia phenomenon, there's a couple different ways this can happen. One of these would be that the satellite cells, which are sort of muscle-specific stem cells, and they work in concert with um, mesenchymal cells, which are more universally found. Those can actually become fat cells or muscle cells. Those can also sort of um, decide to go down the, the lineage line to become skeletal muscle cells. But they were. You can find that those, when you increase fiber number in skeletal muscle, that those satellite cells will basically take on the uh, the um, the tasks of becoming brand new fibers. Another thing that's been found is in biopsies, you'll see that um, you can have a sort of a splitting of fibers. So you literally see branching of fibers. And what happens in the case of muscle that's been really really damaged? where you've got a tremendous stimulus, which is the type of thing you'd, you see with these sorts of animal models with the quail and the hanging weight, is damaged muscle will have centrally located uh, myonuclei. So normally the nuclei are on the outside of the fiber. If you think of a, a muscle cell, it's, it's, got a, it's largely contractile protein. So that's where the forces are, are at. So if you have all this contraction and high forces going on, that's not going to be a safe arena for um, a safe place for for nuclei to hang out, generally speaking, um, because of all the forces that are there, it does. It's not conducive for maintaining the integrity of the the myonuclear cell membrane or myonuclear membrane, and all the other the DNA is there as well. So you want to kind of keep that somewhat protected. So you usually find those on the periphery of the cell. A lot of the mitochondria will be there as well too. So what you'll find though in some of extreme examples of of uh, a damaged muscle or muscle that's undergoing rapid adaptation is the centrally located nuclei which suggest that and that would fit at least this is something you can't like you know put a little microscope into the muscle cell and you know just kind of tape the uh, tape the little uh, the video uh, video monitor the person's leg and watch the fibers do their do their deal so we kind of have to piece this together from bits and pieces of of studies that have looked at similar types of phenomena, but it suggests that maybe one of the ways in which you're getting hyperplasia and more muscle mass is those nuclei are are that are centrally located in the middle of the fiber are nuclei that are that are going to be part of a new fiber. So the satellite cells sort of becoming new fibers and then this branching phenomena is two of the, the two two of the major ways in which you could get new new muscle cells. So one thing that you see and I've, frankly, to be honest, I've somewhat lost um, the, uh, uh, the original question that you had. But what you can see or what you do see in the muscle of individuals who've been using steroids is a good number of centrally located nuclei. And that could be a function of how hard they're training and simply the amount of damage that's going on. Or it could be indicative of what some of those other data tell us where you see these bodybuilders with large muscles that have average size fibers, suggesting that they got some of that muscle growth, not from hypertrophy of those fibers, but increase in number of those fibers. And it could indeed be that that steroids, because you tend to see this in steroid using bodybuilders, because of a function of the steroids, or the function of the training um, are bringing about hyperplasia as a way of growing the muscle that you wouldn't otherwise have available to you. And another sort of um, piece of information that kind of points toward that possibility is that if you look at what happens when you expose skeletal muscle to androgens, and this has sort of like been the big question, it's like, well, why does why does over time, you, why do you tend to see you know reduction of the effect in, in skeletal muscle growth to androgens if you're getting... Or would you expect to have down regulation of the antigen receptor? Well, the down regulation or the upregulation regulation of the antigen receptor in a given tissue or different cell type is, uh, is going to vary dramatically depending on that cell and its function. But what you see if you're looking at the organ of skeletal muscle is that you don't have much in terms of antigen receptor um, changes to uh, exposure to antigens. But you will see the upregulation happening. This is what you'd get if you just did a biopsy of whole muscle. The upregulation is happening in those satellite cells and even in the mesenchymal cells that can sort of choose whether, what, what sort of cell type they want to become. And it drives them towards differentiating into skeletal muscle, nuclei, or skeletal muscle cells, which could form the basis for new muscle cells. So, there's something about antigens, and sorry, I've kind of lost the original question here, but I'll kind of finish tying all these pieces together that's creating a scenario where you've got the possibility for hyperplasia at work, and um this is this is the antigens are doing something different in terms of turning on that mechanism of growth brought about by the satellite cells and i'll add this one piece I sort of sort of was thinking that folks already knew this, but it's not a it's not a hard and fast, even the science, it's not a hard and fast accepted notion. But in large part, what you see when muscle cells grow, when you have just normal hypertrophy, is they have to maintain what's called a myonuclear domain. And I always sort of uh, use the analogy, it's sort of like a um, a city that wants to grow, you need to have more post offices to, to coordinate all the delivery of packages and the mail and what have you. So you'd increase a A cell or a city size from 100 to 200,000, you're going to need to have roughly twice as many um, post offices just to handle all the incoming packages and what have you and FedEx and what have you. So the satellite cells that make their way from outside the uh, skeletal muscle cell, if those those end up becoming nuclei inside the muscle cells, that's a, a really kind of a vital part, I think, even especially the long term for producing muscle growth. So satellite cell activity really represents a major commitment to potentially hyperplasia, as I mentioned before, but just to the regular, more accepted, commonly thought of mechanism muscle growth. That is an increase in the muscle size because having more of those nuclei is necessary just to maintain protein synthesis across what is now a larger muscle cell. You can get some muscle growth just from an increase in protein from a positive protein balance, turning on protein synthesis more than breakdown. But if you're really going to enlarge your city and you really want to make it work the way it's supposed to, you need those post offices there to coordinate all the flow of, of packages and what have you back and forth. And the same way in a muscle cell, if you're going to make it substantially larger in a way that's going to be functional, you're going to need and, and it's going to be able to keep the protein balance and keep the cell organization in the way that it's, it should be to make that cell functional. You're going to need more nuclei around just because you've doubled the size of the cell. You just need each of those nuclei um, to not be overly stressed. They simply won't be able to handle the burden of, of uh, nuclear control across a given area of the muscle if the muscle's gotten too big. So satellite cells turning on, differentiating, perforating, differentiating, and then making their way into the muscle cell is I think something that's pretty important for muscles that are going to grow substantially larger. And obviously that's what happens when someone's training, doing everything else, and they've got gear in the mix as well.
0: Right. So, um, there would be follow-ups to that, but, um, at the risk of actually pushing those 10 hours, uh, maybe <laughs> let's just, let's just cover, let's just cover the last, um, topic here. And Did that I get to you your da- last
1: question though? I, I kind of lost my train of thought. I had so many things I was piecing together that I, I don't remember what the question yeah, yeah. was. Okay, good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not going to claim that I understood every single part of it, but uh, <laughs> I'm okay. kind of narcissi- narcissistic and I tend to re-listen to my own podcast, ah. so I will be good eventually. Right um, So last thing I want to ask you about is the dietary side because uh, when it comes to naturals, it's um, kind of kind of boring in terms of actual methodology. The implementation, of course, is, is more complicated. Adherence issues... Um, Honestly, when it comes to designing diets for fat loss or for, mu- for muscle growth, uh, managing uh, psych- psychology and habits in the case of naturals is a lot more interesting and complicated than the actual arithmetics around it. Um, right. I'm interested in how all of that changes when someone is using gear. So just to kind of give a basic outline, The basic rules are, if you want to lose fat, you can do that quite expediently as a natural. You don't want to be crash dieting, so you don't want to go into like a 2,000 calorie deficit unless you're super, super high in body fat. Um, But you can do that for a very brief period. But generally, you know, something like a 10% deficit for lean people, for very lean people, for... A bit fatter people, 20 to 30% deficit, and the fatter you get, you know, 40 50% deficits, you might be even pushing. And then when it comes to muscle growth, uh, it's just so slow that basically eating a ton of food and the whole eat big to get big concept is, um, it just goes out the window for naturals. There is some, you know, disagreement amongst experts. Some might be a little bit more assertive. But nobody is recommending anybody to eat in a thousand calorie surplus. You know, even those that are kind of in the camp of, you know, you know, eat big to get big, bro, even they might be recommending a 500 calorie surplus. And then some others are looking at that. It's like, well, probably it should be more like 100, 150, 200, because you're just going to get fat. So basically, that's how it's looking like for naturals. Um, how is that? changing when somebody's going on gear. So, are these 1000 calorie surpluses really something that are workable and are truly objectively more productive than much more moderate surpluses? And then what's going on on the calorie deficit side? Uh, can you can you give us some insights on that?
1: Yeah, so the the fascinating thing is that and, and this don't take this as the knock, because the notion of caloric surplus and deficit is you have to have that in place in order to just work in this area of trying to lose body fat or gain muscle mass. So that obviously is, you know, that's a center point for constructing diets, conceptually at least. But in terms of quantifying what is truly a caloric excess, so if someone, I mean, if someone truly has a caloric excess of, thousand calories a day and so they, they accrue 7,000 calories of caloric excess truly um, then that if it's true excess beyond their metabolic needs then you do that for that's two pounds of body fat roughly you know going by the standard number of the people we use and so you're gonna get eight pounds of body fat in a month that way so the thing is is that there's so many things that are changing and then i i don't know i don't know ever seen i know there it can be done obviously with uh you can use an indirect you can use indirect calorimetry get a metabolic cart you know and they actually have portable units that are sort of backpacks you could put on someone and do your best to try to measure except for the times when they're actually eating where they have to have access to their mouth to put the food in you could try to or put up someone in a bomb calorimeter you know, where they literally in sort of a a giant um, chamber where you can can measure the heat that's being produced and do indirect calorimetry. No one's really measuring what the actual deficit or excess is. It's sort of a guesstimate as best you can based on a a diet that was at maintenance, that had someone, you know, staying at the same body weight and body composition through skin folds in the mirror and everything else. And then you add 500 pounds beyond that, 500 calories beyond that, and presume that that's at least initially a 500 calorie caloric excess. But we know that neat changes, various your, the, the metabolic changes might might change by person to some degree. Thermic effect of food is a possibility. All those all those bits and pieces that add up to caloric expenditure can change, and that can happen over the course of time. So this is why you see in like one of the studies I also often refer to is a study where they actually did put people in a, they sequestered them into a clinic and did a two week baseline um, diet in order to figure out what maintenance was. This was done up in Canada. It's been decades now since this was done. They had fraternal identical twins and one of the studies, they gave them a thousand calorie a day excess based on that initial diet, six out of seven days for about three months. In the other study, they had them exercise using indirect calorimetry, so they expended an extra 500 calories, and they reduced their food 500 calories. So based on that initial period where they found maintenance, that would have been 1,000 calorie a 1,000-calorie-a-day deficit in that experiment. So one was an excess, one was a deficit, both the same general idea of six out of seven days a week, 1,000 calories in excess based on the initial measurements, or deficit based on the initial measurements. And what they found was that the weight gain or weight loss was all over the place everywhere and the fraternal twins were pretty close so s- some individuals were gaining like you know 12 pounds other people were gaining twice that and um, and the fraternal twins were relatively close within you know three or four pounds so if you know one set of tw- if one twin gained you know 20 plus pa- 22 pounds the other one might have gained 20 and but you look at another set of twins and they're down at like nine pounds and 11 pounds of gain or lost same pattern in both of the studies looked at the identical twins and they were very 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 close so it's hard to really know whether how much you and I kind of uh, I've sort of blathered on here about this point but really knowing what is truly an excess or a deficit um, is sort of an impossibility unless you're tracking those things kind of continuously because there's so many changed variables instead what you have to do really is is titrate and adjust the diet and this this is my opinion at least is by looking at strength gains if you're trying to gain size or hold on to muscle mass. Look at skin folds. I have people pick skin folds that aren't necessarily those that are used in the studies as standardized sites, just the places where they know they hold fat. And you can actually corroborate that with a DEXA measurement. People can even produce their own um, uh, predictive equation based on their own skin folds and what DEXA tells them. So they can use their own skin folds to to have a prediction of what DEXA would say. That's exactly what skinfold estimate equations do is that they predict most of the time, the early ones, a so Jackson and Pollock, for instance, um, those predict what you get with underwater weighing, which is another estimate of body composition. But you can use those things, of course, the mirror, and you just adjust and titrate as needed. So um, that's what you're going to do uh, at least what I would do as a coach and whether it's truly a 500 or 400 or 600 calorie caloric deficit or excess is going to depend on the person, how much, how well they hold on to muscle mass, how many calories they need to eat in order to, in order to make progress. So I, so many, I've talked with so many people, work with so many people, interact with so many people every once in a while, you'll come up, like I just got one of these messages not too long ago on Instagram and the guy was, it's like 200 pounds and he was eating like 6,000 calories and it may have been bullshitting, it's possible, but there are people like that who just, they, their, their body will, and their meat, their activity levels, just the way they live their life is such that their caloric expenditure is sky high. And creating a true caloric excess requires a massive amount of calories, much more than someone else who um, is sort of less or more gifted depending on how you want to look at it in the, uh, in the metabolism department. So it's all a matter of sort of individualizing that. So then the, the question, of course, the purpose of the podcast is sort of look at the um, the differences among individuals. So take one scenario, can just pull out the different scenarios, sort of give you some snapshots of where the spectrum could lie. There are individuals who will who will basically who are enhanced. So they will spend their um their off season, for instance using food as their main anabolic, so to speak. I'm sort of stealing that term from Dontre Trudel. He's talked about this, and I think this is just a a great way to go about this in in general, given the relative risk. Obviously, you know, being obese and eating massive amounts of food is not where you want to go. Obesity is definitely not where you want to go as a bodybuilder. But using food and the calories and, of course, the insulin primarily, the the hormonal responses that come with eating that, that food, is a great anabolic stimulus and that person might you know cruise along on a, a bodybuilding type TRT maybe a, you know a little bit more than that and one two three four I use the growth hormone and so they start their prep at let's say 250 and you do have these scenarios where people really will um, they will recomp in the real sense and that they gain muscle mass and lose body fat at the same time which you can see in in natural trainees too who go from just eating kind of whatever, um, you know, their sort of standard American diet, and they start training, especially this is a function of the person, their genetics, to what extent they commit themselves, how hard they're training, how much they're forced in progression there, of course. But you can see, and Chris Bearcat, a buddy of mine here in town, has is, is co-authored a paper on this notion. He's done a couple podcasts, I think stood out. Um, they were a little controversial for a while. Uh, you, guys, you may have talked about this, actually, with Dave McConey, I think, I can't remember. Yeah. I think he, pardon my, yeah, I think it, might have, yeah it was on your podcast. Right. So yeah, I even did
0: a, I even did a solo video, which was not my proud of proudest moment where I sort of came across like the biggest dickhead on the internet, <laughs> like outlining <laughs> how, that up. Yes. Yeah. I deleted it since then. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, but, but, but those things have
1: been documented and, and they can happen. Of course you don't see this tremendous changes. It's not as they're evident when you look at the before and after pictures. They're evident in lots of you know before and after pictures that that um, personal trainers would put out. Now, nowadays, because of the relative um, availability of gear, you've got a different scenario. So you're like, well, was that person, whether they just gear up and make those changes or what? But you can see in some high-level competitors who lay low, so to speak, during their off-season, try to progress their strength, muscle mass, if at all possible, and then when they go into a pre-contest phase, how you would do their diet with them may even mean um, an increase in calories or keeping their calories the same. Because now they've introduced, they go from, you know, 300 milligrams a week to 3,000, let's say, something like that. And they're already a responder and maybe their training takes it up to another level. And they're doing cardio too. And they're one of those individuals who would rather do, and they can get away with this because they hold on to muscle mass so well, so they do 45, 50, 60 minutes of cardio a day, and they maintain relative, they're not playing video games the rest of the day, so they're somewhat active, and now they eat more um, than they would have otherwise when they weren't doing that cardio, but because of the cardio, they still are maintaining a caloric deficit, and here's the key, is that especially if someone's actually putting on muscle mass, which can happen, like I said, natural and especially when people become enhanced or they go from relatively unenhanced to um, being sort of full-blown, is that there's an energy cost, which is sort of an unknown. I've seen it kind of estimated, but it's unknown what the true energy costs are of building muscle. So um, if someone is gaining, let's say, and so that's, a, that's a, a pre-conscious scenario where they literally, from the novelty of the stimulus and their particular genetics, their responsiveness to the androgens, can actually put muscle mass on it may not be more than like five or six pounds but you take someone who's already you know 250 pounder at 12 percent and they gotta get they're gonna drop 8 percent body fat so uh, let's say that's 20 pounds of body fat so they drop 20 pounds of body fat and they put on five pounds of muscle mass I don't know maybe it maybe it takes five pounds worth of body fat to um, to provide or what would be the caloric equivalent of five pounds of body fat to provide the energy to build those five pounds of muscle. I don't know if that's the case or not, just throwing out some numbers to sort of cement the concept. And they start adding in cardio on top of this while they're gaining muscle because they can get away with that recovery-wise. They may end up eating close to the same amount of food that, at the beginning versus the end of the diet. And not to mention they may throw some T3 in there, some clen, some growth hormone. You got those things in the mix as well. So you, you go from relatively nothing To a full-blown cycle is a responsive individual, and your diet may change very, very little. So think about that scenario where you're recomping, which can happen, or even just think of the natural situation where you don't have any gear involved. We're kind of comparing those things here, anyway. It's like, so what really is a caloric deficit if someone's losing body fat while they're gaining muscle mass? Is is how do we, how do we even conceptualize that? You, 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 it, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a paradox wrapped in an enigma, you know, surrounded by a conundrum. So go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was just gonna, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you, uh, finished on that point because like, the like all the early stuff were like well yeah it's uh, there's just no response to this because on the one hand you do everything the same as in the case of a natural like you monitor progress and and based on that you adjust things but then obviously some things would be different there in that okay if i'm training someone who is natural and i'm monitoring their body comp if their body weight is going up by like one percent per week on average then yeah sure we're gonna look at calipers and waist measurements and whatever but it's highly highly unlikely that your gaining phase is on point if your body weight is going up by that much Uh, even for a rank beginner right that, that would be a pretty hefty increase so obviously the one thing that would change in the case of an enhanced person is that you can probably in many cases, like your body weight might well go up by even more than 1% per week and it could still be like very lean gains. Mm -hmm. But then of course, then the answer is like, and then, how much is gonna that be for whom? Well, that all depends on all the fifty billion things that right. the first hour of the podcast was about. Um, right. However, what you mentioned at the end—that calories even go up during a contest prep because training just goes to a whole new level. Now, that definitely does not happen to natural. So at least no. there is like one clear distinction that we can point out here.
1: Yeah, no, that that would be. But 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 you'd look at some of the you know the individuals. And this is of course we gotta differentiate between someone who has been, let's say they're natural, they've been competing for several years. So they've already gone through that newbie gaining phase. So they're not they're not getting they're getting one or two pounds of muscle mass in an off season and they're happy about it. That's different than someone who is untrained and comes into it and has a recomp phenomenon because uh, that's extraordinary because they're highly gifted. So those are two, you're right, two very different scenarios. So but still, I think it depends, it depends so much on the individual and whether kind of constitutive body fat levels are. So there was a, a guy I went to graduate school with, um, and I may have mentioned before, uh, we actually, we trained a little bit in grad school, we're training partners, you know, on and off, um, because we worked in the same lab. He was actually my neighbor, right next to me. It's funny, I, I moved into grad school there, and as you know, I didn't even know he was in the lab, I just knew I was going to work with, and we started chatting, and we realized, <laughs> You know, we were going to become, you know, we were doing the Ph.D. programs with the same advisor in the same program. Just pure coincidence. We ended up living right next to one another in a condominium complex. And he was a phenomenal athlete. He was, um, he was about 5'7". And uh, he could dunk, just stand underneath the rim and dunk a basketball with two hands. Easy. He, was the, he held the state record in the high jump um, at, that, at that height, like 6'10 or something like that. So, phenomenal. And he, and he, we did a body comp lab. I've actually posted some stuff on my Instagram about this, where we did skin folds and uh, some bioelectrical impedance. Actually, we did a, a bioelectrical impedance scale it had just come out. and We did a, a lab-based bioelectrical impedance measurement. We did underwater weighing. We did the bod pod. We did DEXA. We also did a four-component model where we measured body water with doubly labeled water. So the full deal, like every all the main sort of from the the lay you know at home measurements with the scale and those sorts of things, even circumferences we did using just looking at all the different ways to estimate body fat. And he wasn't he was just kind of training haphazardly, go up there and you know shoot hoops for a little while, and then you go in the gym and you know kind of do whatever. Really strong, not, ridiculous physique. He was four percent, four or five percent on all those measurements. Just, I think the bod pod was off, but he's off for everybody. But he's four or five percent, and that was just him. So you take someone, and that was without any effort. I mean, I live right now. I mean, I walk in. It wasn't like you know, he's, I, he was sneaking his groceries and cooking his food. You know, I wasn't training or anything like that. But we trained together. I know what he did. He was just kind of a genetic freak. So you take someone like that who has a a set body fat set point or settling point that's low, and let's say over the course of um, you know five or six years, uh, you know he competed, maybe he really pushed his weight up just incrementally, not even competed, but that's his natural body weight or body fat settling point, and so he decides to then diet back down. It's going to be a very easy trip for him relative to many people to get back down to what is his normal level of body fat, which is pretty... He looked like he was about contest ready. I mean, he was never shaved down, never tanned, any of those things, didn't have to. But he was just naturally unbelievably lean, just a phenomenal physique. You see this all the time. If you look around um you know like down here in florida a lot of people are wandering around in in tank tops and uh or a shirt off and you see guys and you're like you know that guy he's just riding his bike around you're like holy shit the guy if he ever touched the weight he look he's already it looks like he's about five percent body fat and he probably doesn't do anything to affect that he probably just eats you know whatever he finds at the gas stations and whatever just pops in front of him so so what, what is needed in terms of you know dieting down and whether you need even you know this idea of a, a caloric deficit um, whether that needs to come into play? Like someone like like friend of mine, his name was Chris um, in, from grad school. He literally would just I mean, if he was eating in excess in order to gain weight, for him he would probably just need to have enough time. And I'm just imagining the scenario with him and just gradually bring him down from the force feeding. Or the excess food that he was intentionally taking in in his off season down to something that felt relatively comfortable. And that would get him, you know, four fifths of the way to a competition diet. That would put him, you know, probably six weeks, four or six weeks out. And then he'd just have to diet for a little bit. So, would he ever really even be, if the most of his diet is eating above his appetite, he's probably gonna be in a caloric excess, so to speak. Um, Not really, of course, because he's losing body fat. But that wouldn't feel at all like a deficit to him. But it would be because he's relying and so readily relying upon that body fat to make up the, the missing source of those calories because he pushed his body fat so high above his settling point that for him, like whether that's a deficit or not, is eating a deficit if he's going from 5,000 to 4,500 to 4,000 finally down to you know 3,000, which is where he maintains because he'd previously eaten so much. You're still cre- eating less than you were before but his bot, his genetics are dictating where he's going in terms of a settling point body fat wise. So right. it all really comes down to the person to, in my mind. Those, those numbers are nice to keep in mind, um, as cha- a way of notice or measuring the change from where you once were, but whether it's truly a caloric deficit or deficit, I don't know. It's what's happening in the person that's most important i'll have to go down to like you know thousand calorie a day i dieted this last year to try to bring myself down to the light heavies just to kind of just for something that i hadn't done i hadn't been that been that light in 20 years something like that close to it and i was doing like a thousand calories a day um for six weeks something like that it was diabolic it was tough and that's with a lot of activity on top of it that's what i had to
0: do so all right well uh yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty fascinating and uh, very informative. And uh, I'm sure it opened up a lot more questions to a lot more of the listeners than it answered and certainly is the case for me in some aspects. So uh, I will uh, have to try to get you back on at some point to address a few more of the nuances. First, I will have to re-listen to the podcast a few times myself, uh, which I like to do anyway because I'm a narcissist. <laughs> and then... Um, You're curious. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. You're listening to hear other people, not yourself. I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I do. I do like the tone of my voice. I'm not gonna lie.
1: <laughs> okay, there yes. may be an issue there. I'm not gonna not gonna fight you on that one.
0: Yeah, there, there are some problems for sure. Um, <laughs> no, but but uh, Scott, this was incredibly informative. So I want to thank you so much for sharing everything. And um, yeah, you're. Mind is just wild how much you know and um, just how many things you're thinking about from so many different angles. I don't want to like brown my nose here too much, but <laughs> I'm really, uh, anytime I listen to you, I'm, I'm, j- I'm just fascinated. So I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything. And uh, yeah, with that just last question, where can people find out uh, about everything, services, content, uh, anything that you want to mention?
1: first of all, thank you for that. Um, I, I appreciate that. I've just kind of a curious, it's, it's a function of being really curious and still liking, really loving bodybuilding so much and just haven't been around for so long. I just try to keep, I forget more than I know, you know, keep on forgetting, but keep on trying to remember. So eventually the the factoids accumulate and it makes me sound really probably smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> you can, uh, fortitude training, fortitude underscore training is my Instagram. I'm I've been constrained by the, the social media universe to uh, to focus my efforts there, but I've also got a Muscle Minds podcast. So you can Google that. We're on um, it's on the Think Big Network with Scott McNally, so you can find that. He's moved it over, and I can't say exactly where he's got the everything hosted now. He's made a sort of a change, so I don't want to misspeak. And then, um, if you want the sort of the my brain dump, in, <laughs> so you so you don't have to listen and try to uh, piece out, figure out what the heck I'm talking about. I've got a book. That I put together a couple of years ago called "Be Your Own Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach," and it's like 400 pages. It's um, if you like to go down rabbit holes as I do, you can get the PDF on my on my um, web page, and I've got 2400 references in there, and it's hyperlinked like crazy. So you can click on a for the link for the 1800th reference, it'll take you to that citation. And most of the time you can click there and it'll launch the actual paper for you. And it's hyperlinked throughout the, the book as well. So that's um, that's sort of my first step for people who want to kind of dig into things I might have to say. When people contact me, they want to do consults or what have you, I'd say, well, take a look first at this book. Because it gives you like, it's sort of a, a, a mapping of my entire brain bodybuilding wise. And it's going to be uh, an easier way to, to glean information. And then if we have questions, I would love to do a consultation and talk with you, try to help you out. But I, I kind of direct people to that because I think there's so much to be had by sort of following the path that I think I was naturally inclined to. And that's just sort of to um, relish the opportunities to to be and feel sort of um, ignorant and then figure out ways to remedy that by playing around and testing things out and learning and becoming a a better bodybuilder and hopefully a better thinker on top of that along the way. So I encourage people to check that out if they're interested.